covering all aspects of Milwaukee Brewers baseball. It's time for Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Here is your host, Matt Pauley. We do welcome you into another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. We are powered by WTMJ Mobile. My name is Matt Pauley. Thanks so much for being tuned in. This week's program is actually going to be a little bit different than most weeks, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But let's start off the program as we normally do with our housekeeping type items. If you do listen to the podcast via Apple Podcast and can leave a ranking and review, that would be uh, helpful and that would be appreciated. A lot of people have uh, continued to do that and it helps us uh, move up the charts and everything and more people find the podcast. So that's cool. That's all I ask of you. You don't have to do it. Nobody's uh, twisting your arm, but if you do have a moment and can do that, that's great. Uh, If you ever want to comment on anything that we talk about over the course of the program, or if you just have a general comment about things, you can uh, do so on Twitter by reaching out to me at Matt Pauley on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air. You can also uh, email me if you would like at uh, matt.pauley at wtmj.com is the email address. All right, so here's what the plan was for this podcast entering Sunday. We were going to mention here at the beginning of the program the last week's worth of Brewers baseball, but really uh, we were going to do things differently. You know, we always have all the different segments with the headlines of the week and the down on the farm and uh, our social media conversation and everything. Uh, Pretty much kind of scrapping that today and just going to uh, review the draft that came to an end this past week. And uh, joining us in just a few moments is uh, today's guest, as uh, Brad Ford from Brew Crew Ball is going to join us on the program. Essentially, Brad today, not so much a guest, but more of a, a co-host as we look back at the draft. So that was completely the plan going into uh, the day. And then late in the day, some news breaks, some pretty significant news for the Brewers. They make a trade. They send off G-Man Choi, and they get an exchange infielder Brad Miller from the Tampa Bay Rays, who had recently been designated for assignment. He wasn't having a great season, 256, five home runs, 21 RBIs in 48 games with the Rays this year. But he's a guy who was a 30-home run hitter uh, just a couple seasons ago. Defensively, he's he's okay. He's nothing to uh, write home about, but certainly has a major league track record. And even when you look at some of the advanced metrics on what he's doing this season, even though the raw baseball card numbers don't look great with the 256, five home runs, 21 RBIs, uh, you can find some advanced numbers that say he's playing a better than that would indicate. So we got to mention that real quick. And look, I don't have a lot to say on it. This is for me. This is really simple. This is a good move for the team to make. G-Man Choi, you appreciate everything that Choi has done. He's had a couple really cool moments for this team. His final at bat with the Brewers is a grand slam that turned a a deficit into a lead. So G-Man Choi did his job. There just weren't going to be at-bats for him, especially with Eric Thames set to return. G-Man Choi is essentially your fourth first baseman with Jesus Aguilar, Eric Thames, Ryan Braun, all being able to play there, and then other guys on the big league roster that can play there too. You need Travis Shaw to play first, he can do that. You need Aaron Perez to play first, he can do that. Uh, So 
G-Man Choi had nice moments this year for the Brewers. He was a nice guy that you could add when uh, you played in American League ballparks for uh, the designated hitter. But basically, Choi was not going to get any major opportunities with the Brewers. And who knows? We don't know if he would have been back with the club anytime before September. I'm sure at some point he probably would have been, but there was no guarantee. There had also been some rumblings uh, from some overseas reports that Choi's camp was not happy with the fact that he was spending so much time at AAA that they wanted him to get uh, more of a big league opportunity. Now, the Brewers, when that report came out, the Brewers denied that uh, emphatically, saying you know, that's not the case. There isn't any unhappiness there. But it also seems somewhat coincidental, I guess you could say, that this move ends up uh, being made. You know, that report comes out the the next day he's with the big league team for some interleague stuff, and then all of a sudden, uh, after getting sent down to AAA, not even really getting there, he's involved in a trade where he goes to the race. So good for G-Man Choi, good for him to get more of an opportunity, uh, popular in the clubhouse, pop, you know, good, good guy, good teammate, just uh, from a numbers crunch, it wasn't going to work for him to get any real opportunity with the Brewers. And then you bring in Brad Miller, and right now, up the middle for the Brewers, specifically at shortstop, I mean, Jonathan VR's done a nice job at second base this year, but at shortstop, you haven't gotten anything. Orlando Arcia just is not hitting. Eric Sogard is not hitting. Tyler Saladino injured. Nick Franklin, a combination of hadn't gotten an opportunity to do anything and is injured. Mauricio DeMond, injured, never even got the shot. The shot, he was very close. I think he would have been, that injury came at a horrible time. I think Dubon would have been with the Brewers within a week of that moment had that injury not happened. But again, it doesn't matter because it didn't. So they need some production. Uh, to me, this kind of feels like the Stephen Vogt trade from last year. Guy's designated, you go out, you give something for him. He's a guy who's got a major league track record. You're not asking him to come in and be a starter. You're asking him to come in and really stabilize a spot offensively a little bit. Maybe if he gets off to a nice offensive start, if you want to send Orlando Arcia back down and try to really accomplish what you were trying to accomplish with him previously when you sent him down to give him some you know, real at-bats every day with not a lot of pressure and then the injury to Saladino forced him back up. You've got an opportunity to do that. If you're going to move on from Eric Sogard, you have an opportunity to do that. just opens up a door that you can walk through. It opens up multiple doors that you can walk through. I think the reason people are upset, uh, two things. Uh, people are upset about G-Man Choi getting traded because he had some good moments with the club. And you get kind of affectionately connected to him, for lack of a better term. And then second, I think the average person out there doesn't realize that guys like G-Man Choi, there's, there's not a huge market for him. You know, there's guys who get designated who don't get claimed who are pretty good big league players, but you just can't work out a trade. Teams aren't willing to give up a lot of stuff very often. I, I always bring up Scooter Jeanette. And I, you have to look at Scooter Jeanette through the lenses of who Scooter Jeanette was coming out of spring training, not this past season, but the season before, right before he was picked up by the Reds. Not who Scooter Jeanette is now. But who Scooter Jeanette was then was a very capable major league player. And when the Brewers designated him, they were the, I'm sure they explored trades for him. 
Nobody was interested in giving anything up for him. Chris Carter is another kind of example. He was somebody who was, uh, while he was non-tendered, the Brewers did try to work out deals for Chris Carter, guy who led the National League in home runs, and nobody was interested in giving anything up for a Chris Carter. So I think sometimes from a fan standpoint, you think guys are more valuable than they actually are, valuable in the sense of what you're willing to or what you can receive for them. And if you sat there and thought that because G-Man Choi had, you know, 100 or so bats uh, at bats in the big leagues and had done some nice things and had such a great spring that all of a sudden his value was going to be way high up in the air, I think you're wrong. And that's they got something for him. It was a it was a kind of a a throwaway signing in the off season, and they get somebody who may make an impact on this team. Maybe he won't make an impact on this team. Maybe it fail you know fail, it's just a complete failure, and Brad Miller isn't even with the Brewers in a month. Maybe that happens, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to work out a little bit better than that. So that's my take on uh, this situation. Again, we were planning on this program to be strictly uh, going back over the draft, but uh, we are going to uh, we got to spend a little bit of time on that. And with that, let's go ahead and bring in this week's guest. Really, essentially, he's this week's co-host uh, because he's a guy that uh, I certainly rely on when it comes to uh, draft information. He uh, he covers all aspects of the Brewers, from the big leagues all the way down, and also uh, has done a great job following uh, the draft stuff here so far this year. Someone who is a regular guest on the program. I guess we can uh, call him a co-host this week from uh, from Brew Crew Ball. He is Brad Ford. Brad, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on. We really appreciate you taking some time. Yeah, thank you. I'm always happy to come on and always excited whenever I get the opportunity. Before we get into really the draft stuff, obviously the, the news of the moment as we're recording this uh, on Sunday night is the Brewers make a trade uh, in going and sending off uh, G-Man Choi, and uh, they they acquire uh, really a, a position of need by going and uh, getting Brad Miller from the Tampa Bay Rays. To me, this kind of feels like the Stephen Vogt trade from last year, a guy that you're bringing in probably to be a backup, but it's an area of need. It's uh, a guy who's got a major league track record. You're not asking him to put up huge numbers, but a guy who's got the potential to make an impact on the team, and it seems to make sense that you're uh, dealing from a position of strength with trading away G-Man Choi. And, oh, yeah, by the way, there were some rumblings out there that G-Man Choi's camp had been uh, wanting a trade. They didn't want him to be at AAA. We don't know how true that is, but his time in the organization might have been coming to an end one way or another either way so i don't i don't see any drawbacks in this trade no and when brad miller was dfa'd last week i think a large portion of the brewer community said this is a trade that immediately makes sense uh brad miller had actually been being used consistently at first base this year which isn't his position of strength second base is his best position he can play a little outfield little in or shortstop and i think he's played a very little third but ideally you're playing him at second base um so to have him at sh- first and hope for production there you're not going to get the type of offensive numbers if you're the raise that you want from that position by having a middle infielder at that corner spot so now they get g-man Choi, left-handed hitter who can come in immediately fill that spot that miller was playing 
I mean, I know they're both starting at their respective AAA organizations, probably just to get a little uh, bit of steam going within the organization. Uh, It just, on paper, makes a ton of sense. Like you said, allegedly, G-Man Choi was not happy with the amount of playing time he was getting and requested a trade. Adam McAlvey kind of came back in the organization and said, no, that didn't happen. But then again, he got more playing time in the last week and a trade than the last week. So it kind of seems like it happened uh, if you put the puzzle together. And it just answers two big holes in both organizations. Uh, you get some cash back, too, with Brad Miller. So that helps uh, David Stearns, who's kind of stingy when it comes to spending, eat some of that a contract, I mean, it's $2.5 million, which in the major leagues isn't that expensive. But in terms of trading a guy who you were barely paying anything at, I think, like a major league minimum level to now paying a guy a couple million, kind of a big deal when you're in a market where that budget is tight capped. But yeah, it just made a lot of sense. Um, and I think actually Brad Miller might have a chance if you look at some of the advanced analytics like WRC Plus, which is a measurement that uh, in short puts all of the offensive numbers like uh, slugging, uh, OPS, you uh, take in like your batted ball speeds and really shows how well a person's doing offensively. And bad is ranked as 60 or lower. Eric Sogard has a WRC plus of three, which I didn't even think was possible. Hmm. Orlando Arcia is at 38. And then you have Hernan Perez at 63, where Brad Miller coming in was well over 100. So you can actually have a guy making offensive contributions, even though it looks like he's having an off statistical season. He's actually doing pretty well. Um, and he's has a hard hit rate of about 40%, which is fantastic. So I think he's someone who can come in right away, uh, share the infield time. And like you said, I don't think he's going to be getting most of the infield time. But I think he'll be getting playing kind of like Hernan Perez is as long as his bat keeps producing the way it is. You mentioned the money as well. The other side of this is this probably isn't happening Monday or Tuesday, but this might be a domino that you pushes down where eventually it's going to result in Eric Sogard not having a job. And I don't know if Sogard's willing to head back to AAA again like he did earlier this year. If that's the case, you may end up eating Sogard's contract, which isn't a ton. Again, I think it's $2.5 million just the same. But by by getting some money back, that could help you in terms of offsetting the money lost if you don't have Eric Sogard on the team moving forward. Yeah, that's a great point. And like I just said earlier, Stearns is someone who values his expenditures very much. So if you're going to get a situation where you can replace Eric Sogard with a better version of Eric Sogard, and I'm a guy who, and I think we're both this way, who very much appreciate Sogard and his family, appreciate the person he is, appreciate what he brought to the 2017. But the fact of the matter is he isn't producing. So if you cut him and he leaves and he doesn't go down to AAA, as you mentioned, uh, that's that money on the table. And if you can negate that cost even further by getting that cash back, 
it's substantially better for the team in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. All right, now let's get to the reason that we have you here, and that's to uh, go through a lot of the draft. The draft wrapping up this past uh, week. Uh, the first few rounds were on Monday, then they went uh, up into round number 10 on Tuesday, and then they wrapped it up uh, on Wednesday with uh, going all the way to round number 40. Basically, uh, for our listeners, so you know what you're getting ready to hear, uh, we're going to go uh, pick by pick through uh, the first 10, and then we might uh, select a, a guy here or a guy there, uh, 11 through 40. But before we even get into the individuals, Brad, what's your uh, what's kind of your overall takeaway about uh, the approach that the Brewers took in this, the value that they got, just everything, without even getting into the individuals? What, what are your general thoughts about the way the draft went down for the Brewers? I think my biggest takeaway is I was surprised. I thought they would be a little bit more conservative than they have been in years past because they didn't have their third pick from signing Lorenzo Cain, so they were a little bit more cash-strapped than they are normally. Uh, So to have three high-ceiling, probably high-bonus guys go at the top of the draft was pretty surprising to me. Um, I also think it showed a lot about how the front office is doing its scouting. You have, from 1 to 40, probably more community college picks than any other organization. Uh, You're also looking at areas that people don't really get to very often, specifically areas like New Jersey, uh, the Upper East, because people don't want to deal with that weather, the Midwestern weather like we have. Uh, You're looking at community colleges, which don't get scouted very often. And yet again, the Brewers continue to hit Hawaii with two picks from Hawaii, uh, which is, again, not a heavily scouted region. So I think the Brewers are trying to get the best guys from the areas no one else is looking at. Uh, And I think that's something that we've already seen them capitalize on and something I think is actually very exciting. And I don't think they're doing it just to try to be the smartest. Like, I don't think they're trying to take the community college guy because they think, oh, if we take this and he can turn into something better than any fourth round pick, we're getting or we look smart. But what I think it is, is if you invest a lot of scouting, scouting dollars into those areas no one else is hitting, and you know that a player like Micah Bello, a high schooler from Hawaii who really only played in the States a couple of times on showcase circuits, if you know that, oh, right, we have a second-round grade on him, and we could take him with our first pick, but we'll definitely get him in the comp pick, or if they had a third-round pick, oh, we'll definitely get him in the third round because no one else is watching him like we are you're getting a ton of value at your picks. I think that's something that happened with Aaron Ashby. I think that's something that happened with players like David Fry, who I think also signed under slot value. That's the other thing is you can get players like uh, David Fry in the seventh round, who's a catcher who played all four years as a senior, doesn't have a lot of negotiating power is going to sign for under a slot value. And, you get a good player out of it because you're looking at a smaller school. So not only are you looking at community colleges, you're looking at smaller colleges, which you have a guy coming from Northwestern State University, uh, which is not at all the most popular Northwestern in the country. Um, You have Florida Southern College, a college you rarely hear about. Um, And then finally, 11 through 40, you have some of the bigger schools, but you're still looking at a lot of community colleges. So I think that's their goal is to get more value by getting guys they have grades on that are probably around higher than where they're taking them by scouting in places no one else is looking. The sign that has been true as well is 
they like going up the middle. They like pitchers. They like middle infielders. They like center fielders. That's going to become a trend. And I think as long as David Stearns is around, that's going to be a trend in just about every draft. Let's start uh, with their first pick. And they seem to get pretty good value. Uh, high school shortstop out of California, Bryce Terang. His dad was a big leaguer with uh, Seattle. Uh, Baseball America had him ranked as the 14th best prospect. So based off that, uh, good value. What's your takeaway from uh, that selection? Um, so Terang actually went in and had a – he has been one of those guys who scouted since his freshman year. This year, scouts were looking for proof that he was a top-five pick. Not just the top first-round pick, a top-five pick. In fact, if you go back and you Google the two early 2018 MLB mock drafts, uh, he's number one or number two on almost every board. And he just ended up not having the strides that coaches wanted to see – or that uh, scouts wanted to see out of him. That doesn't mean he wasn't good. He was, he did have a little bit of a drop off from previous years, but I think the Brewers think they're getting tremendous value here. Uh, they're probably going to have to sign him a little bit over slot, uh, which is no problem as long as they think they're getting the right value. But if you look at a lot of the scouting reports heading into this year, people said he's basically the shortstop version of Christian Yelich. He has very safe defense. Uh, he runs pretty well. In fact, they actually said he runs better and probably has better defense than Christian Yelich. Mm. So if you're getting a Christian Yelich at shortstop, I think everyone would be thrilled. Um, a lot of people thought he was going to go one overall. And I think when the Brewers saw him fall to them at 21, they were incredibly excited to get that value because I think they see things that caused him to have an offseason. Um and there are things that they think they can fix and get him on the right ship and get him performing at the way he was. And even if he isn't, he also is expected to have one of the lowest floor or highest floors of everyone in the first round. So he was just a safe pick who can play shortstop or second base, has enough arm where he might be able to play third. Um, and He's just a David Stern. Like you said, he's a David Stern's guy, a guy who can play all over the infield, and he'll probably hit for a decent average while doing it. Uh, doesn't seem like a huge power guy, probably around 15 home runs at his peak. Uh, that can always change. He's only 18. He still has a little bit to fill out in his body. At, he's only 165 pounds, so he can add more muscle. Um, yeah, but I think they just saw this and thought it was a ton of value at the place they were picking and wanted to make the most of their pick at 21. You mentioned might have to pay over slot money. He is committed to play at LSU. Do you expect any signability issues? Um, I don't think so. I think anyone in the top 10, uh, they already have those communications. That's also what I get from a lot of the players I speak with when I'm doing the draft interviews. So... I think they had that conversation. They know his family. And the only reason we probably haven't heard anything yet is they're likely waiting to make sure they lock up the other players, the value they want them at to give Bryce the money he wants. So they'll come back and then give him the bonus he wants. Um, I don't think that's going to be an issue at all. And I don't think they'd take him if they did think it would be a serious issue. Apparently they do have a pretty long history with him. They've been one of the teams scouting him for years uh, and they apparently actually have good relationships with his family, too. So I think that's going to go a long way in the negotiations. They're going to get Bryce what he wants, and then Bryce is going to be in the organization before the signing deadline. 
All right, let's get to their second-round pick, 60th overall, a high school outfielder by the name of uh, Joe Grays from uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He's another guy who's committed to an SEC school in uh, Mississippi. Baseball America had him ranked as the 52nd best prospect. So, again, according to Baseball America, they're getting a little bit better value than uh, the selection uh, in terms of where they're selecting. Um, yeah, and, again, I think that's what they want to do with their first picks. I think they want to get a lot of value according to their scouting grades early on. Uh, so Joe Gray actually is a very similar story to Terang in that he's been scouted since he's a freshman, didn't make the jumps. The only thing is, like, he was fringe first round coming into this year, didn't perform well, had some issues making contact. But in the showcase circuits, he also had some difficulties showing that he was able to hit quality pitching. I think the Brewers organization saw something that made them very, very comfortable with what they were getting uh, and went out and got him. He is a guy who has a ton of raw power. um, And if you can get him to hit a little bit more than what he was doing at high school, has a bunch of tools to profiles more as a right fielder. He has a very, very strong arm, uh, possibly like, if people remember or saw him, Monte Harrison had a very strong arm, more along those lines. Not quite the Brett Phillips grade. Um, he's a decent fielder who can run pretty well. He'll never be a base dealer, but he he's your hopes is that you're getting like a 250 guy who can hit about 30 or so home runs when he matures. Uh, big lefty or big uh, outfielder who hits right. Uh, he's 6'3", 195. Um, I think, again, they just saw a lot of value in this pick and took advantage of scouts falling off on him because of his performance in the last year. You mentioned earlier Hawaii kids, and their first Hawaii kid was selected uh, in the compensatory round, uh, number two, 73rd overall. Another outfielder by name of Mike Abello. thing that jumps out to me, he doesn't turn 18 until next month, on July 21st. They're getting a very, very young individual here with this selection. Right, and it really makes you feel old, for one. Uh, but I think, again... The Brewers have allocated a lot of scouting dollars to Hawaii in recent years. Um, Micah Bello, by, if you talk to a lot of scouts who actually followed him, they love him. Uh, a lot of the ranks had him in like 150 or later in the ranks that did a couple hundred prospects. But from the reports I read from scouts who spent a lot of time on him, he is a guy who probably will be a five-tool player uh, who has more power than people give him credit for and can hit the ball very, very hard with a good bat speed. He runs well. He also has a strong arm. Uh, he, in fact, runs so well that he can probably play center field. Um, I think, again, the Brewers thought they were getting a ton of value in this pick, which is going to be something I repeat, so I'll try to <laughs> lay off of it. Um, because, again, I think that's their goal is to get someone who teams don't who teams think should be a fourth rounder but really should be in the round they're going for or a round beforehand um and from everything i've understand about mike Bello is he his biggest knocks when you're looking at the ranks um online from the people who are responsible for grading the prospects is that he can't hit but every actual scout i've talked to and i've talked to three i think on mike Bello, they say he can hit and he can hit for power and I think he's very, very exciting um, and could be a really good center fielder one day, too, because he has good defense. 
We'll go to the fourth round, and here's a guy with a familiar last name. It's a pitcher. They took a pitcher in the fourth round, left-hander Aaron Ashby. He is uh, related to uh, former Major League catcher Andy Ashby. He is the nephew of him. Again, we say good value based off the rankings from Baseball America and MLB.com. Uh, seems like they got good value. Juco kid pitched at Crowder College, which I, I've been around Juco sports for a long time. I broadcast junior college basketball in Iowa back in the day. I continue to do some uh, junior college stuff now, and I I had never heard of Crowder College somehow, uh, but Crowder <laughs> College in Missouri, so it's relatively uh, nearby. Uh, looks like, uh, again, good value with this pick. Yes, um, and he ha- is ranked as having one of the best breaking pitches of college pitchers in the entire league uh, or in the entire draft. And actually, the funny thing is, so I, he's one of the players I actually spoke with. And I kept asking him, I was like, oh, yeah, everyone talks about your curveball. Tell me about your curveball. He's like, well, my curveball is all right, but my slider. And it turns out that the thing everyone loves that they say is a curveball is actually his slider. Hmm. But a slider just has downward movement. Uh, but you talk about him, and I think he's incredibly intelligent. Uh, that was what my big takeaway is. Not only is he just naturally talented with pitching, he talks about how he knew he wasn't going to get through with uh, two pitches. So he took his fastball, which he peaks around 95, um, and his slider, which he had good command of. And he decided to add a variation by throwing a two-seamer on his fastball, which he likes a lot, and gives players a different look. And then he added a changeup, which when they were drafted, if you watch the live draft coverage, they said about Ashby that he is a two-pitch pitcher. But then, um, if you, I think Jim Callis said on the same draft that actually he's developed a changeup, and the changeup looks pretty good. He said he was able to develop that changeup by watching Max Scherzer and started throwing it based on what Max Scherzer did and found he had a lot of success with it. Um, how successful are his pitches? He did strike out 18.8 per nine innings. Uh, that's 156 strikeouts in, I think, like 98 innings. Uh, he said he did expect to go a little bit earlier, uh, but ended up falling a little bit. But it sounds to me like he'll probably end up signing. Again, I don't really think signability is an issue in the first 10 picks uh, because that's something they tend to talk about before they even call. Um he also, what I really liked when talking about him was I asked him in the videos I watched, he has, he'll change his delivery from time to time. And sometimes as abrupt as actually stopping mid leg kicks. So when he's bringing his leg up in his windup, he'll just stop and then he'll go through. And I asked him, why did you start doing that? He said, well, actually I would sit in on hitting practice and I would hear our hitting coach talk about timing out the pitcher, timing out the pitcher, timing out the pitcher and how important that was to get a good swing. So I said, well, if they're trying to time me, I'll ruin that. Hmm. So I thought it was incredibly intelligent that that was just something he heard while people were taking batting practice and learning, you know, better hitting skills. And he took it upon himself to then use it as a weapon. So I think he's very smart. Uh, He talked a lot about how he uh, teaches himself a lot of the things he's found success with. And I think if he's coachable enough that he's able to teach himself those things, once you get a professional organization around him helping him grow, he's really going to shine. And I think this might be your Corbin Burns slash Brandon Woodruff steal where they get a later round or a middle round of the first 10. Um college pitcher who can fly through the system it looks a lot better than anyone gave them credit for in the draft generally speaking 
high school kids that are drafted uh, end up going to Arizona. Sometimes they go to Helena, but they're definitely going in short season. Sometimes they don't even play this year if they've had a long college season or if they, for whatever reason, and they just need to kind of get matured up and they finally play next year. Then you're the four-year college guys, sometimes they start at Helena. Occasionally you'll see a guy uh, get assigned to Wisconsin. Certainly those four-year college guys uh, end up uh, playing full season ball before the season is over. Obviously, JUCO guys, they're older than the high school kids, but younger than the uh, the four-year guys. Where do you see someone like Ashby uh, ending up in terms of, uh, A, where he'll probably end up this year, but also maybe even kind of the, the timeline? You know, the four-year college guys can excel through the system a little bit quicker. The high school kids sit back a little bit. Is Ashby a guy that might be able to excel through relatively quickly? I do think so. Um, I think that what they'll do is get his uh, inning count up this year by actually sending him to Helena and having him throw those shorter outings that they tend to have recent draftees throw. So he'll come out, he'll do two to three innings depending on his pitch count. Sometimes they'll even let a guy get a fourth. Um, so I think that's what you'll see. Uh, they might even just skip him occasionally in the rotation because he does have a uh, higher workload. Uh, in the last year. So, and then I feel like they'll, if he has success in Helena, I feel like either way, actually, as long as they like what they're working with, they'll start him in Wisconsin. That seems to be what they do with uh, pitchers lately, and even the more advanced high school players, is they'll start you in Wisconsin, see how you react to that environment, and then they're not afraid to bring you down to Helena or leave you be in Wisconsin rather than calling you up if you don't thrive. So you can either be your uh corbin burns who had his half season in the timber rattlers after dominating helena and then went to carolina dominated carolina went to biloxi dominated biloxi uh or you can be like a Bowden francis now who's been sitting it who's having some success in wisconsin was drafted last year it's probably gonna spend the whole year in wisconsin because he's having back and forth success um but i don't think the college guys even at Juco, I think he still has a good chance to have full season ball next year. And they'll probably just occasionally give him a shorter outing or some time off to make sure they build up his innings. All right, let's jump to uh, the fifth round. They got a, a kid out of Lake Norman, North Carolina. You were talking about feeling old earlier. He makes me feel old, and this is why. His high school coach was Ty Wigington. And when I was broadcasting Colorado Springs Sky Sox baseball, Ty Wigington played for the Sky Sox. So <laughs> now a guy that I was broadcasting his games like just a hand, you know, just a few years ago is some kid's high school coach. So that makes me feel really old. But nonetheless, with the uh, fifth round pick, uh, number one fifty five overall, they go with uh, a pitcher by the name of Justin Jarvis. Again, he is from uh, North Carolina. He's committed to UNC Wilmington. Uh, looks like again, we we keep saying it, pretty solid value for that pick. Yeah, uh, he is a very hard thrower. Um, he throws around 95, can actually, I think he was clocked at 97 at one point. Um, had a lot of success in his ball games. In fact, threw a 18-strikeout uh, perfect game. I think he had a one-hit 19-strikeout game or something along those lines. Um, but he was off and on successful. There were some games where he went out and really dominated, and other games where he would get beat around and have trouble control. Um, but he's projected to actually do everything at least major league average, if not a little bit better. Um, there's a lot of risk, I feel like, in Jarvis because he is so wild. 
but he's one of those guys where it's at in the fifth round it's so worth the risk and you might get something really really good about out of it even a great bullpen pitcher um he's going to move through the system slower uh, he's going to be a guy who definitely starts in Arizona. You might see him only a couple times this year, and then he might even go to Arizona again next year. That's kind of how they've been moving with the pitchers. The pitchers move very, the high school pitchers specifically move very, very slowly. Um, I think Brendan Murphy and Caden Lemons uh, didn't get more than five appearances last year. They were, they were drafted. Uh, they were both high school pitchers and really didn't. Let's see. Uh, they had. Yeah, Caden Lemons had three games and 2.2 innings pitched last year. Hmm. He's probably going to be in Arizona again, uh, and I see a similar development path for Justin Jarvis. It's going to be one of those very slow-moving, but the patience is going to be worth it um, if they are able to really polish him up and get him throwing pitches where he should be. Um, especially he has a pretty good breaking ball and a really good fastball, so you at least see bullpen see, or like on him if he doesn't become a starter. All right, so the sixth-round pick is interesting. It's a kid from Oregon State and Drew Rasmussen, but hasn't pitched for a while. He was drafted by Tampa Bay in the first round in 2017, wasn't signed because of some uh, MRIs. He wanted Major League Baseball to declare him a free agent. The league did not. He had Tommy John surgery in September 2017, missed the entire 2018 season. He's a pitcher, has a lot of upside, but also this is a bit of a gamble when you look at his history. Already two uh, TJ surgeries, uh, and you know it's he's he's 22, 23, however old he is. Obviously, this is a gamble. Yes, um, and I talked to him and. Uh, he talked a little bit about how his recovery is going and he actually hasn't even started throwing yet. Um, his advisor and him decided that because it's the second Tommy John surgery, they'd actually wait to see if he got drafted. He wasn't even sure he'd get drafted. He was a first round pick last year who didn't sign. And now the Brewers are actually the third team that drafted him because he got a courtesy pick out of high school. Um, he's a little on the older side. Uh, I'm not sure if he, since they need to work up a throwing program with him, if you'll see him, you might get a game or two out of him towards the end of the season. Um, it's probably safer to assume that the Brewers are going to use him as a reliever to really kind of ease up on that arm and only throw him out there occasionally. However, he is still a first round talent that you're getting in the sixth round. Uh, you don't know what he's going to look like uh, because it's been so long since he's thrown, but that's still a lot of excitement and a lot of bust potential. Uh, it was actually funny talking to him. He, because he didn't know where he was, he was so unsure where he was going to go that actually before he got drafted, he was preparing to give a uh, statistics presentation <laughs> and then got the call that he was getting drafted. Uh, because he knew the surgery would throw teams off so much. So he knows that it's a big risk, uh, but he's been working really hard on it, and he thinks that uh, with the regimen he's been going on and how slow he's taken it, that his arm is healed up. Um, and he's pretty comfortable with the who he can be. I, I just think they're going to have to work him as a reliever for his own well-being. But the ceiling that's on him is still astronomical but we haven't seen a long track record of success from pitchers with two Tommy Johns, especially two Tommy Johns so close to each other because he only threw a little bit before blowing out his elbow again. 
here's a guy who is just a first-round pick. Do do you almost have to give him above-slot money because of that history, or is it somebody who's, again, he's got two Tommy John surgeries, not a whole lot of teams were interested in him. You, you take whatever you can uh, get, get if you're him. I think this actually might end up being an under-slot signing. Um, based on when I was talking to him, he didn't tell me anything specific, but it sounds like he is interested in signing. Um, I believe he finished up his college career, so he can definitely move on now. Um, he's a smart kid, and he has some backup plans, so I think he's ready to give uh, pro baseball a trial. Um, but I think he doesn't have a lot of negotiating power, even though he can go back to school. If he goes back to school, he's 23 when he gets drafted the next time, um, about to turn 24. So age isn't on his side. I think it's if he wants to pursue this life, he has to sign, and the teams know that. Um and he's not getting more money next year if he waits. And he's not getting more money the year after if he waits. He just, the best time to come out is now. All right, let's go to round number seven. A uh, kid out of Northwestern State. And if you're not familiar with Northwestern State, if you're ever like watching a random basketball game and there's a big, gaudy, purple Louisiana right in the middle of a basketball floor, that's Northwestern State. They're they're somewhat known for the basketball floor. Uh, catcher by the name of David Fry. This kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, getting guys who were the best at a smaller place, the, the proverbial big fish, small pond. He's Northwestern State's all-time leader in doubles and total bases, uh, Southland Conference Tournament MVP uh, this past season as well, uh, all-collegiate baseball magazine and Southland Conference Player of the Year as a senior. I mean, this is the guy who did everything you could potentially do when playing at the level of a Northwestern State. Yes, um, and I – when I talked to him, he actually said he believes that he should have been uh, the player of the year for the Southland Conference two years in a row. And even the coaches uh, believe <laughs> he got shit. So he's a little jaded about that, but he was happy to get it this year. Um, I think the Brewers are taking advantage of a small school. They found a guy with a high skill set who responds well to um, coaching, who does, who has a great mindset when hitting, and also plays solid defense. Uh, he was played third base. He's played it well. He's played first base, and I think he was picked as the player, like the best player at first base uh, when grading out the season, and he can catch pretty well. Um, the Brewers want to use him as a catcher. That's just not where the team had needed him last year. Uh, so, or in the throughout his career, but he says he's definitely comfortable with doing it. He'll need to knock off a little bit of rust, but he thinks he can do it pretty well. Um, yeah, he. I like his mentality. I was talking to him, and he said, you know, you just go up there and you wait for the pitcher to make a mistake. And if the pitcher doesn't make a mistake, you just take your best offering and hit it in the area where he's making you hit it. So you definitely look for that opposite field mentality and talked a lot about how his, uh, he has an approach that's about just getting on base. Um, so he's pretty smart in that regard. Um, he's also the only one I talked to who said he hasn't tried Fortnite at all because Fortnite seems to have enveloped the entire baseball community. And he's pretty proud that he's managed to stay out of that. Um, so he's a, which I think kind of shows his maturity for his level that he doesn't want to, he just wants to focus on baseball. Um, he's a person who's incredibly passionate about baseball, loves the game, loves to watch the game. And, I, I think there he could be a big surprise out of the seventh round. And he's also probably going to sign under slot because he's a college senior. So, Do you play Fortnite? Uh, I do. 
Um, so I only play it because I do play video games and it was free and it was everything my friends were playing. So I reluctantly got onto it. And then there's, there's too much building. I don't want to play a farm simulator with my first person shooter. I just want to shoot at people when I'm doing it. So I, uh, I'm not about it. I've never played it ever. Yeah, well, good for you, and stay away. All right, I will. I will do that. As we were actually having a conversation off air beforehand. I'm not much of a video game guy. You are, so that goes into that. But uh, let's get back into baseball. Uh, their first reach might have been in the eighth round. Uh, kid by name of Luis Gonzalez, the other Luis Gonzalez, I guess you can go. I love this quote from Todd Johnson, who's the Brewers scouting director. He told MLB.com, "Quote: He's relatively raw. He's got a good arm." fastball breaking ball he's a developmental piece for us he's a tomorrow type guy when you hear tomorrow type guy obviously that's somebody that uh that's a long play for them and they're not they don't have great expectations for him right now right so he's i is he 18 yet i believe he is 18 um and he is one of those guys who maybe you'll see him at double a around 23 and that'll be fine for who he is. It's kind of like Jorge Lopez was also that way. Uh, took him a long time to develop, but now you have a solid bullpen pitcher when you need him. And one day he'll probably be in the bullpen regularly and contributing and helping out. Um, I think they see a starter ceiling for Luis Gonzalez. Um, he has five pitches and four of them could be uh, average or better. Um, he, they're hoping right now he's a six foot three twig who they're hoping as he adds bulk will add velocity. Um, and again, it's a Puerto Rico isn't exactly poorly scouted, but it's not an area that's as heavily scouted as others. It's kind of this forgotten realm actually in the Gulf because so many people are focusing on the. Um, other areas like the Dominican Republic, like uh, getting outside of the Gulf, but focusing on like Venezuela, where the Brewers have found a lot of success in their players. Um, it's an area that doesn't get that same level of attention, um, but still produces some very, very good players. In fact, I believe uh, so. I think Jorge Lopez was from there as well as Mar Mario Feliciano, if I re am remembering correctly. Um, Yes, Feliciano is. Uh, so I think the Brewers are, again, looking at an area where they can get value, where no one else is paying attention to as much. Um, but yes, it's going to be a very, very long development. Uh, you can take this for what I said about Justin Jarvis, about how long the process will take for his development, where they'll start him. He might throw maybe five innings this year in Arizona. And then he'll come back and get the chance to throw in Arizona again. And they won't move him out of Arizona because they'll want to control him and make sure he's working on things. And they'll want him under the the personnel that's out there consistently working with players and developing them. And then they'll move him up to Helena. Um, and if they don't feel he's ready because he needs to master something else, they won't feel obligated to move him. So even when you're seeing him put up numbers like a three ERA and averaging 10 strikeouts per nine, they still won't move him if they don't feel that's what's right for him because he is so raw. Um, and they'd rather develop him properly than push him through the system because of some success. So he's definitely a long play, yes. Ninth round, 275th overall. Center fielder by name of Arbert Scipion, a uh, guy who's committed to play at Southern New Hampshire University. So he obviously a, a big-time school in Southern New Hampshire University. But all that being said, I mean, 
his numbers look fine. We're talking about a guy who's selected 275th uh, center fielder, so that goes back to what we were saying earlier, an up-the-middle kind of guy. Yep, and he wanted to be a Brewer, so that should immediately make fans a fan. Uh, the Brewers have been scouting him for a long time. Have He said that they've showed him the most interest. Uh, he said they were consistently at his games while their scouts weren't. Again, I think it's about sending scouts where a lot of teams aren't willing to send scouts because he's in New Jersey and it's cold and they're playing a lot of cold weather games in the 20s and it's hard to actually be sure that you're going to be able to watch a game when you're playing in inconsistent weather. I don't have to tell people here they're from Wisconsin. They understand. They live it. Um, that same reality is true in New Jersey on the East Coast when it comes to scouting baseball. So it's hard to get good looks at people. But this is someone that the Brewers have allocated a lot of time in. And I think that time is proof that they believe he is much more valuable than a ninth round pick. I think they probably didn't even think anyone were going to take him in the top 10, but wanted to make sure they can secure or could secure him. Um, he has had a lot of success. He is a speed first type of player who actually, as he continues to grow, cause he is very tall and he is very, very, very lean. Um, could put on more muscle, but he'll still stay very fast. Um, he has good defense in center field. He does need to improve his routes a little bit. Uh, and But he's a gaps-to-gaps guy who can really get around the bases and do damage there. He likes to do damage there. When he was talking about the way he approaches the game, he wants to take the... He was talking a lot about adjusting to pitches so you don't have to make his hard to jump before they're thrown he was talking about really being patient at the plate and only doing what the pitcher her with the ball what the pitcher gives you and trying to make the smartest play if the smartest play is getting on first and then stealing if there's that opportunity that's what he wants to do if the smartest play is hitting something down the line and legging on a triple that's what he wants to do uh for him he actually said one of the most exciting things for him is hitting a triple um I think he's incredibly intelligent. He's very, very excited to be in Milwaukee. Um, it was actually, he is also a really admirable person in that he loves to spend his time giving back. He realizes he wouldn't be where he was without the help of his older peers in baseball. So he goes back in the community and he gives back to his local baseball organizations, uh, really tries to help out his brother too, who he has proclaimed is going to be much better than him. So maybe he'll also be a brewer in the coming years, and then we can have uh, two Sipions helping us out at the upper level. But he's uh, talking to him. He's a really nice guy, uh, and he's so excited to be living this lifestyle. He sounds like he really wants to play the game smart and correct, and he wants to learn about it. He wants to soak it in. He said on, in his free time, he's just watching baseball. He's obsessed with baseball. Um, so I, I'm really excited about this pick. It's actually one of my favorite picks in the draft. Part of that is because I spoke with him and I had somewhat of a connection with him. Part of that is just even before that, looking at the videos, I, he has a very clean swing. He's had success with a wood bat um, and he has a very interesting tool set. And I think he does have substantially more room for power that just isn't there yet. And eventually he could be a 20 home run type guy, even though right now he's graded as like a five to 10 home run guy. Uh, next guy is another guy who's from a, a somewhat obscure school. In the 10th round, they went with a pitcher by the name of J.T. Henson. He's from Florida Southern College. Brad, let me throw this at you because uh, I don't know as much about these guys as you know, but something really jumped out at me on this one. He's a Division II kid, but he pitched in the Cape Cod League 
in 2017. You don't see these non-D1 kids in the Cape Cod League very often. That's Doesn't that say something about him? Absolutely. Um, I mean, he is, if you watch him, um, he is, he looks like he's doing way too many things right for being a D2 starter. Um, he has like great control of his body. He has good velocity in his bat, her, uh, his fastball, uh, the way he works pitchers and her hitters in and out, uh, shows he's very comfortable with both sides of the plate. There's a lot to like about this pick, um, and he controls the ball very, very well. He had a strikeout to K ratio of one fourteen to thirteen. That's insane. Yeah. So stop. Stop for a second because you're saying a lot. That needs to be like public. One hundred fourteen strikeouts, thirteen walks, in right. just under a hundred innings. That's insane. Yes, it's outrageous. And college young pitchers who like to get strikeouts don't have control because if you want to get strikeouts, you're trying to mess with it or with the players that shows that he throws a lot of strikes and gets those strikeouts by fooling people in the zone rather than using his stuff to get people to reach outside of the zone. Um, and it just shows to me it, when you're looking at box scores and scouting them that way, and then comparing it to the video, he just knows how to pitch. He knows how to work hitters. Um, because like I said, He's so comfortable coming inside on players. He's so comfortable moving to both sides of the plate. It's astounding. And, yeah, he earned his way into a Cape Cod League performance, which normally those situations are given to D1 players. Um, They're actively recruited just for being a higher-level D1 player. Um, But this is a guy who had to earned that spot with a phenomenal performance and then went there and against people who were in a league higher than him in terms of college rankings was phenomenal there. He had 23 innings, had a ERA under two, and again, struck out 23 and only walked two. There's a, yeah, it's something that I think you should love in terms of value in the 10th round. Yeah, I, uh, every year there's like a, a guy or two that I kind of randomly pick out as guys that I'm most interested in. And I, this is one of my guys this year. I'm very intrigued by what he's able to do because there's, there's, there's a lot of things there that indicate that he has the chance to be very, very successful. Yes. Was Devin Hairston your guy last year? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's my guy. That's my guy. All right. And he's so, not doing too bad in Wisconsin this year. So Doing all right. Doing all right. So, and that Wisconsin team, they're starting to play better. As we're talking right now, they're back within a game of 500. There's some interesting pieces there. We'll, in one of our future conversations, we'll go back through the minor leagues. But uh, uh, real quick, everybody kind of talked about that Wisconsin roster as maybe being one of the down rosters across the, uh, across the Brewers minor league system. Brad, i got to be honest with you. I look at that roster. There's a lot of interesting people in Appleton. Yes. Very quickly, uh, one of my favorites is Bowden Francis. I mentioned him earlier. He has been very dominant. Uh, He's coming off of two back-to-back outings without giving up an earned run, where he went at least seven innings, I believe. And then you look at uh, hitters like Gilbert Lara is finally coming on. Remember hearing about Gilbert Lara? Everyone does. Yeah. Um, and he's finally coming on. You have Peyton Henry, who is probably the best catching prospect in the system uh, behind Mario Feliciano. And I yes, I know Jacob Nottingham is up towards the top. Yes, I know KJ Harrison is also there. I still have, in terms of specifically being a catcher as a prospect, I still have Peyton Henry ranked probably on par with Mario Feliciano. 
Uh, KJ Harrison has been a little bit of a disappointment, actually a lot of bit of a disappointment, considering he's a college pitcher or hitter who really should be uh, punishing these players that, uh, who are, for the most part, younger and rawer than he is. His 72 strikeouts and 150 at-bats. But aside from that, you have... Uh, Gilbert Lara, you have Zach Clark, you have Tristan Lutz, who Tristan Lutz is finally finding it. Demi Ormaloy is having a fantastic year, uh, continues to show gr- big signs of growth. Uh, Kenny Corey is someone they just called up, another draft pick from last year, and uh, he's being had been phenomenal since coming over. There's a lot of players to like, especially on the pitching side. You, uh, But you have... You all of a sudden added, uh, I think they have four now of the top 30, according to MLB Pipelines list. They have Carlos Herrera, they have Peyton Henry, KJ Harrison, and Tristan Lutz. And it's, yeah, it's become a really fun roster. And I definitely thought people were poo-pooing it too much because it's a bunch of guys with very, very high ceilings who just haven't showed that much at this point in their careers. And now they're actually showing it. Their ceilings are starting to come to fruition. Uh, Tristan Lutz took a little while to figure things out, but he's been doing very well in recent months. Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's a super fun group, and I think everyone should. I am guilty of this. I don't take advantage of Appleton being so close. We should all take advantage. We should all go s- support the Timber Rattlers, because right now they have a bunch of very, very, very fun prospects um, on the team. Agreed. Agreed 100%. Uh, look, we're, we're not going to really go through a whole lot of more, more guys here. Rounds 11 through 40, there's some big college guys, Auburn, North Carolina, Iowa, TCU, Washington State. Uh, there's some kids from those schools that, uh, that get drafted, some, uh, some better than others. What's, kind of, what, what's your general takeaway from uh, what, they, what they were looking at rounds 11 through 40? Um, they were looking... It's kind of weird because they're like you look at their number eleven pick, uh, Davis Daniel. That's a guy who I believe is a sophomore eligible draftee who uh, thought he would go a little bit higher, uh, and but has said he'll sign if they have the cap room. He's a guy who throws in the high nineties um, and can be. Un- they always seem to get these steals at 11. They got Chad McClanahan, which was a high school player no one expected to sign out a couple years ago. Last year, they got Javon Ward, who is in their top 30s and was a high school guy no one expected to sign. Uh, Davis Daniel is a guy who has a very close connection with the Brewers and has been scouted with them by them for a long time, and they have a very good relationship. Uh, he's a little younger coming out of college and can throw very hard. So I think you look at situations like that, and you're looking at guys they've invested a lot of dollars in who they built up those relationships they know their expectations and that's what they're going for in hopes that they can sign them uh there's definitely a few courtesy picks thrown in here uh a couple of the top 100 who they knew weren't going to sign uh like brandon williamson uh was a uh, player they knew they weren't going to sign um but i a lot of it's just kind of maximizing getting older players and having that depth but I think in terms of the steals you're going to get out of it, they're actually trying to work on those guys they have relationships with and the guys who maybe they can take, and if they have enough run money, they can sign them, and no one is expecting them to be someone who would sign. So you get a guy who teams would be taking in the sixth or seventh round if they knew they would sign, and because the Milwaukee has that relationship with them, they can get them now um, should they have enough cap left over. 
see a bunch of high school kids that are committed to play for some pretty major programs. A kid committed to Georgia Tech, kid committed to LSU, kid committed to Georgia, kid committed to uh, NC State, kid committed to Michigan. I could keep going, but you get the point. More often than not, do those guys, if they're if they're drafted outside of the top ten and they've got a scholarship offer to a, a Power Five program, more often than not, are those kids headed to college? I would say ninety percent of the time, yes, they're headed to college. Um, the one exception I think I've heard in this draft is uh, Reese Olson, uh, who's a right-hand pitcher. Uh, is he might actually forego his signing if the Brewers can a- offer him enough money? But that all depends on how things go beforehand. Like I said, they're a little shorter on money than they have been in recent years, and I'm not sure they're going to be able to manipulate their slot pool given their first two picks like they have in recent years. Olsen, the kid who's committed to Georgia Tech, was a uh, perfect game honorable mention All-American this past year. Uh, Sometimes are some of these guys also kind of safety nets for the team because, you know, something can go wrong where you don't sign a guy selected in the top ten and all of a sudden you've got a lot more money left over than you realize that you would. All of a sudden, if you've got the rights to some of these kids and you've got more money you were expecting, do you go draft these guys just just in you know their worst-case scenario uh, situations to try to make something of a bad situation? Um, I, I suppose there could be a level to that, but with the signing and then if so if they don't sign Bryce Trang, unfortunately they lose like the three million dollars. So they can't then reinvest that into Reese Olson and Elijah Ka- or Cable or Cabell. Um, so there is some of that protection where you do have a higher ceiling guy who you know can sign at a price point you can get to. But I think for the most part, they're just hoping that things work out in their favors where they can manipulate their signings to get to a point where they end up reaching a deal with those players and convincing them to stay out. And they've had success with that in recent years. Sidebar, and this has nothing to do with anything really, but I'm going to get on a soapbox for a second. And this, I worked in the Royals organization for a couple of years. I was doing their low A team, and a lot of those World Series guys came through. I had Moustakis, I had uh, Duffy, I had Hosmer, I had Salvador Perez. I had a bunch of those guys when I was broadcasting for them in the Midwest League. And the draft system has changed and the way the Royals built was largely they would draft these unsignable guys 10 plus and then they would pay way 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 over slot money and they would get them signed and they built their system that way and you really can't do that anymore with the current system because you're you're capped out on money you can spend and I've, I've never liked that change because when you've got small market teams and this is where it does impact the Brewers when you have small market teams that can't spend a ton of money, they can't go make a huge splash uh, in free agency quite often, or make it over and over and over. Where because you're you're talking you know twenty million dollar kind of contracts, where to go sign to go draft an overslot guy in the fifteenth round and give him first round money you're talking a couple million dollars. So it's so much easier to go way overspend on these kids that you draft than it is to go play in free agency. And I always thought that was the avenue for small market teams to be able to compete. And it's never made sense to me that we're we're living in this world of baseball where 
you know, there, there's luxury taxes and everybody's talking about trying to make sure that everybody can compete, yet they closed one of the biggest doors that allowed small market teams to compete. And I just, it bothers me so much. Um, I empathize with that point, but I do get why they ended up doing it because I remember you look at players like Jason Hayward. Uh, he was a player who was supposed to go in the top 10 but no one felt anyone in the top 10 had the money to sign him. So he falls past that point and goes to a team like the Braves who can afford that. Uh, it was very similar when the New York Yankees thought they were going to sign Garrett Cole in 2008. They drafted him knowing that they had the money to get Garrett Cole um, and no one else would draft him because they didn't think they had any chance of signing him without having Yankee style money. Um, so, you were entering you were ending up losing these top 10 players to players who were in 25 to 30 um ranges and you had to cap off those later teams from being able to make moves like that now that become where that becomes detrimental is definitely where you're talking about in areas where now that Milwaukee's at 21 and signing free agents they're losing draft picks and their draft pick or their pick pool is now smaller. They have a great development team, but they can't optimize it the way they would normally by going out and spending an extra couple million on a guy who normally wouldn't sign um, under those conditions. So I definitely get why it happened and I get why it's detrimental, but I get why they believe there's that benefit. So it's it's a very complicated system. I think what they actually need to do is work out a better system for uh, the supplemental picks. And I think they're getting there. Like, I like that because Milwaukee is someone who received a competitive balance pick that they only end up losing a third round pick instead of a first round pick for signing Lorenzo Kane. I think that's incredibly beneficial to the team losing the pick. But then who did that end up hurting? The Kansas City Royals, who are also in a small market, and they only end up getting the one comp pick rather than the two comp picks that they would normally get from a team who at 21 who's signing uh, that late in the draft yeah, and th- getting a high free agent. So there's a bunch. So they do one thing better, but then also make it worse. The The compensatory picks thing is uh, is dumb. You, nobody should ever have a draft pick taken away in baseball because you signed a free agent. Just do what they did previously with the compensatory round A, compensatory round B, where you can just add draft picks. But And if you lose a free agent, you get one of those picks. Nobody loses a pick. Ba- the, the, the union should be in favor of that because now you don't have to worry about teams not wanting to sign a guy because they're going to lose a draft pick. The losing a draft pick thing is dumb. That's got to change at some point. I think it will. Uh, I, think, I get your point, what you were saying a little bit ago. I had to go look this up because, again, Again, this is Royals related from when I was working with them. Uh, I don't know if, if you remember there was a kid by the name of Tim Melville that was drafted in 2008. Oh, yeah. He was ranked as the best high school baseball player available. There were major signability issues. The Royals ended up selecting him in the fourth round that year, and they gave him $1.25 million. That's, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. $1.25 million doesn't break the bank. It's a chance to go get a first-round talent guy in the third, fourth, fifth round, whatever it might be, and, and give them solid money. I'm not talking about, you know, these these high school kids that are looking for these ridiculous Scott Boris contracts. If you want to cap out 
uh, how much you know the the maximum value that you can give anybody in the draft. That's fine. I just want to reopen that door where you have there's not the cap on overall spending where you can go spend a million bucks and get a guy that falls out of the first round. Right, that makes sense. And yes, I. I mean, it almost makes more sense, like you said, to just maybe have strict budget caps on the first and second round, like the where you cannot sign a pick for more than a million or two million over its estimated value, rather than having these pools and then having a cap for rounds three to 10 and saying like, okay, you can't spend over $2 million on anyone through three to 10. Cause then why does someone want to get picked in rounds one or two? They don't like, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, so there's definitely better ways to do it. My current big thing with the draft is getting the Cardinals out of the compens- or out of the competitive balance <laughs> rounds. That's the one I'm fighting for. <laughs> there, so there's a bunch of things wrong with the draft. Um, and I, Major League Baseball knows it. No, they did a bunch of changes when they, especially with this last uh, uh, contract that they signed with the Players Association. They, they know that that contract hurt free agency. They know that that is now making it more difficult for teams to gain picks and gain leverage like it was designed to do. Teams who are on the lower end, uh, like the Kansas City Royals, who it was supposed to actually benefit them when they lost high-end free agents they couldn't sign. It's now not benefiting them in the way it was designed to uh, because now you have teams that are finally getting competitive who weren't competitive when that contract was signed. Um, But I think we should all sign a petition at least to get the St. Louis Cardinals out of the competitive balance round, and that should be priority number one. And then immediately move on to Matt's thing. All right, fair enough. <laughs> At least it's on the list. So, uh, right. be- before we let you go, you mentioned uh, you know the guys that you've talked to and Ashby, Rasmussen, Fry, uh, Sipion. Uh, what are, can, can, give a plug? Everything you've got going on over at uh, at Brew Crew Ball uh, that you're putting together based off this draft. Yeah, so I already have Ashby and Sipion on uh, up on Brew Crew Ball. You can go and definitely read those out. They should still be on the front page. If not, wait until Monday uh, is when my Drew Rasmussen interview will drop. It's Q&A back and forth with him. Later in the week, we'll have David Fries coming up. Um, I'm hoping to finish one with Justin. Just her Justin. I should get his name right at least, right? But he's giving me the cold shoulder, so it's fine. Justin Jarvis. Uh, <laughs> so I'm hoping to finish up an interview with him. Uh, I also actually have a story that I'm pretty excited about coming up this week about Devin Williams. He finally threw his first pitches after Tommy John surgery. Um, He was back on the mound last week, so I spoke with him about the road to recovery and him getting back in the mound. That'll be another story that goes live on Brew Crew Ball. So we have a lot of interesting stuff coming straight from the players, which is some content we normally have a lot of. So I think that's very exciting. Um, Drew, actually, in his one that'll be going live tomorrow or Monday, depending on what day you're listening on this, I should use the day. Uh, he talks a lot about himself. He gets a lot into his own personality. I think he gives uh, opens the door a lot more than the other players might have. Uh, but he also goes on to talk about his belief in how good KJ Harrison's going to be. So I thought that was very exciting. 
Brad, this was fun. I encourage people to follow you on Twitter at Brew Crew Blue. Read you uh, at Brew Crew Ball. Today, essentially, you weren't a guest today. You were more of a, a co-host with this one today. So uh, thank you so much, as always, for being uh, gracious with your time. And uh, we will talk again real soon. I can't wait. Brad Ford joining us here on Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile, and we certainly appreciate him taking some time with us there. And that's just about going to do it. This is a big week for the Brewers. I know we didn't spend as much time this week as we normally uh, do. Uh, the team, they had a rough few days between uh, the White Sox and the Indians. They bounced back in a big way first two games against the Phillies and they have a tough one run loss on Sunday where they certainly had some missed opportunities and now they go into a really really big series starting on Monday as they do welcome in the Cubs for a three game set and you know this if you're listening to this podcast you know what I'm about to say the Brewers are one and seven against the Cubs this year I don't put a lot of stock in that you look at that series in Chicago where they ended up getting swept, and that was a that was an odd, cold, kind of a weird run scoring environment to use a Craig Council term. And yeah, they were they're one and seven against the Cubs. It's not good. I'm not going to tell you that is good, uh, but I also I think it's going to be all right. I, there seems to be a a feeling from the fan base that this is a make it or break it series against the Cubs. It's June 11th, June 12th, and June 13th. I don't think they're going to get swept by the Cubs. I'm not saying it's fine if they do, but worst-case scenario, they get swept by the Cubs. They're still fine. It's still okay. Big series. I'm not saying it's not a big series. It's obviously a big series. They're a half game up on the Cubs going into Monday's opener. It is a big series. You're already 1-7 against the club that you're going to be contending against for the division. There's many, many reasons that it's big. But how big is it? That's kind of the question, and... I, it's not the end of the world if the series doesn't go well. I think it, I think they're going to be okay. Uh, you look at the pitching matchups, I like the way they go for the Brewers, especially in games two and three. Uh, the game one matchup is Junior Guerra against Jose Quintana. Nothing against Junior Guerra. I just, every time Quintana pitches for the Cubs against the Brewers, it's, it's it doesn't go well. And that's the one guy who's pitching in this series for the Cubs that I'm worried about on the Brewers' behalf. But the Tuesday game, Chase Anderson against Tyler Chatwood. I think the Brewers can be fine against Tyler uh, against Chatwood. Wednesday afternoon at Miller Park, it'll be Elise Chassin against Mike Montgomery. That's probably the pitching matchup that I feel best about. I feel like, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I feel like the Brewers tend to be successful against Montgomery, and Chassin is just continuing to do a good job. Uh, after that's over, an off day on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday Sunday will be a home series against Philadelphia. So that is the plan for uh, what's going to be taking place here over the next week or so. Again, do I say thank you to uh, Brad Ford for joining us. That was fun. That was a really enjoyable, long conversation since he was our guest host this week. And uh, we'll be back with you next week for another edition of Brewers X Journey, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Thanks for listening to Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Matt will be back next week with another episode. For all the latest Brewers news, keep listening to the home of the Brewers. News Radio 620 WTMJ.